following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Portion of our text today, we're going to be in Genesis 18, open there to verse 16, and then we're going to get down into chapter 19 as well. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Behold, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if I will not, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went to Sodom. But Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now skip over with me to chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself from his, with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now skip down to verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take up. Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now skip down to verse 23 with me, and we'll finish up through verse 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and 
all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down on Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Father, we, we do say the Lord. The text that you just read this morning, you know, is one of the largest and most challenging in the world. And we, we want to end our day today by saying, people love So I pray that you open our eyes to the wonders that found this text about your grace and your law and your justice. And you would help us to see Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, when you read your Bibles, you are going to come across some very dark things in your Bible. The Bible does not hide human sin from us. It doesn't hide Darkness in this world from us. You read chapters like Genesis chapter 3, which we've studied already when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and the peaceful paradise of the Garden of Eden was turned upside down. It's, it's dark. It's hard to read. It's really sad when you know what they lost. You read Genesis chapter 6 when the Lord determined that man was so evil that God was going to flood the earth and start over again. And you read something like that and you think to yourself, there's no way things can be that bad. You read a chapter, and you should do this sometime in your Bibles, you read Judges chapter 19. When the people of Israel are in their darkest, most sinful moments, and they did things that should never be done to another human being. It's sadistic, it's sick, and it's immoral. These chapters that you read in the Bible, they're like the, they're like the Towers of Mordor, you know, from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They just stand over the top of it and there's darkness just hovering over things along the biblical text revealing what happens when mankind's sin run it, runs its course. If you ever wonder what would humans really do if allowed no limits on their unbridled passions. If you ever wondered if, free, if humans were given unadulterated freedom without any outside influence of the common grace of God, these chapters that we've just talked about reveal that. We will sin against God in the most unimaginable ways, and we will mock God the whole time while we're doing it. And if we're given a chance at redemption, a moment when we could say, 
Let's have a reboot and start all over. And the God of the universe sends his own son to rescue us. We will put him on a cross outside of our city and crucify him. That's what we will do. That's how we act. That's what these chapters in the Bible reveal to you. And that's the chapters that we have before us in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. We have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, some of you may be wondering, like, man, okay, dude, why would you pick Sodom and Gomorrah on Family Sunday? Right? Well, I didn't pick it. Um, I got sick two weeks ago, and it bumped our preaching schedule back. And I am a firm believer that the best people in the universe to teach their kids about the darkness of this world are you as parents. And I would much rather us have conversations like this in the church because here's what's going to happen. Your kids are going to be taught this anyway. And so let's let's open the Bible. Let the Bible speak these things to us. Some of you may say, too, these are such dark chapters. Why do we preach them? Well, we preach them because they are in the Bible. And we are obligated by God. I'm obligated by God as your pastor and as your friend to teach you the whole, the whole counsel of God, not just portions of it that I happen to like. If I were preaching to you a passage I would like, I would pick Romans 11, 33 through 36 and talk about the inscrutable ways of the Lord and how the grace of God is so amazing and wonderful, right? That's what I would do. An easy text to preach for me. Genesis 18 and 19. They're anything but that. They are hard. These are the darkest chapters in the book of Genesis. They are ones that we come face to face with humanity's sin, with God's righteous judgment, and our responsibility as God's people. And because these chapters, Genesis 18 and 19, are actually meant to go together. So when you are reading your Bible, you need to put Genesis 18 and 19 as a total picture all together because they're given and written by Moses to give a contrast. They are to reveal what do God's friends look like and do and what do people who reject God do. That's the picture. And because that is the case, we're going to look at the contrast more clearly by looking at the four characters in the text. You're going to notice in your outline four characters that we're going to talk about. And then we're going to draw out just some conclusions of things that we can learn while living while living in Sodom. And here's what I hope we're going to learn this morning from this text in Genesis 18 and 19. It's a, the big idea in your notes. It'll come up on the screen. Here's what I hope we will learn. God is the righteous judge, and his people will love righteousness and honor his commands. Friendship with the world is dangerous. That's what I hope we'll learn. God is the righteous judge, and his people will love righteousness and honor his commands, and friendship with the world is dangerous. We're going to look at four characters. We're going to look at Abraham. We're going to look at Sodom or the Sodomites. We're going to look at Lot. We're going to look at God. And we're just going to draw some conclusions, brief conclusions that we can learn that will help us. So we got a lot to cover, right? So let's jump in to point number one, which is in your notes, which is Abraham the righteous. You're going to see this in chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, and chapter 19, verses 27 to 28. Now, the story <clears throat> comes directly on the heels 
of the Lord's visit to Abraham and Sarah's tent that we studied last week. Now, if you were here last week, you will remember, and if you weren't, this is a reminder, or just to give you a refresher, that in chapters 18, verses 1 through 15, the Lord and two angelic friends came to Abraham and Sarah's home to have a meal with them and tell them that the promised son Isaac would be coming to them in the next year, that Abraham and Sarah would conceive a child and God would bring that about within the next year. And what we noticed in that story was Abraham's friendship with God and God coming to have a meal at his home. Now, immediately after that meal is over, the Lord and his angels turn their attention toward Sodom. Abraham seems to walk them out the door and away from the table to kind of basically set them on their way. And I want you to notice some components of this interaction. The Lord had been disclosing what he was going to do to Sodom from Abraham. And he decides that he's going to tell him exactly what he's going to do. And the reason for this is because of the role and the the position that God has called Abraham to be, the father of a great nation, but also he wanted Abraham, pay attention to this, to command his family and the generations to come to keep the way of the Lord. In other words, God is telling Abraham, judgment's coming on that evil place. You, Abraham, need to teach your family to honor the Lord and teach the generations to come to honor the ways of the Lord. And so the Lord told Abraham that Sodom's sin was very great. It had already come to the court of heaven. And God was sending eyewitnesses there. Not not because God didn't know what was going on, but this is a courtroom scene. This is God sending eyewitnesses down so there is no question about God's just justice and God's righteousness reigning down on Sodom. At this moment then, Abraham is troubled. Abraham then begins to intercede and pray for the righteous in the city because he could not believe that the Lord would destroy the righteous people in the city along with the wicked. So you'll notice Abraham does his thing. If there's 50 righteous people, would you destroy Sodom? Of which the Lord says, listen, if there's 50 people down there, I'm not going to destroy Sodom. And then he proceeds to go down through these numbers. Okay, what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? And then he gets to 10, and the Lord's conclusion of it all is, I would not destroy Sodom if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom. Now, at the root of Abraham's request and prayer is this. He's got relatives in Sodom. Lot is his nephew. He came with, Lot came with him when he journeyed out of his homeland. He's got friends down there, relatives down there, people he knows. And he's concerned for their well-being. But there's also something else at stake that we'll talk about a little bit more later. It is beyond Abraham's imagination that Sodom is as wicked as God says it is, and it's beyond his imagination that there's not more righteous people there. He, He cannot believe you're telling me if there's only 10 down there, you'll save them. And the Lord said, there's 10 there, I will. Now, you can imagine later when he sees Sodom smoking, the amazement in his mind, there weren't 10 people there that would claim the name of the Lord. 
So here's what you have with Abraham. You've got Abraham, the friend of God, the one who believed in God, and God called him righteous, approaching God, hearing about the judgment to come upon this wicked city, and interceding for the righteous ones in Sodom, whoever they may be. And what you'll notice in the text is something fascinating, because we're in the middle of what's called the Abraham narratives. The book of Genesis in this moment, we're all talking about Abraham. But you're going to notice something. Suddenly, the story about Abraham goes completely silent. In chapter 19, you don't read anything about Abraham until verses 27, 28. And notice what we're told about Abraham in this moment. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. So that's the place where he prayed before the angels went down to Sodom. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So he knew instantaneously there wasn't 10 righteous people down there. So it was that, pay close attention to this, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. See, when God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, God heard and remembered Abraham's prayers and rescued Lot. That's why you read later on in the Bible, they call him righteous Lot. I'll write more about that tomorrow because there's some debate about that. But you're going to notice something fascinating. Lot is delivered because Abraham prayed. That's important we start with Abraham because you're going to see a contrast in these chapters. Here's what Derek Kidner wrote about this. This is important. The noon encounter in this chapter, Genesis 18, that's the meal that they have at Abraham and Sarah's home. And the night scene in Genesis 19 are in every sense a contrast of light and darkness. The former, quietly intimate and full of promise, is crowned by the intercession of, in which Abraham's faith and love show a new breadth of concern. The second scene, Genesis 19, the Sodom and Gomorrah, Judgment shows confusion and ruin, moral and physical, ending in a loveless squalor, which is even uglier than the great overthrow of the cities. You have Abraham the righteous, the friend of God, who prays with faith and love for his fellow man, especially the righteous, with deep concern. That's character number one. Let's look at character number two, which is Sodom the wicked. Now, it seems that Sodom's reputation has already met the ears of God because of the outcries about the evil that has been going on in this city. So God's men go down to the city to, yes, bring an eyewitness account, but to rain judgment upon that town. And when they arrive, they're quickly greeted by Lot, whom we'll talk about more in a moment, and he hurriedly gets them to his home. It seems that Lot knows a thing or two about the Sodomites' evil. And he wants to save these visitors from these evil Sodomites. That's intriguing because the the visitors flip Eastern hospitality in this moment. 
Generally, when you went to an eastern town and somebody of the city, a leader in the city, offered you their home, you went right to their home. But you'll notice the visitors didn't do that. The visitors say, hey, Lot, we'll stay in the city square. Now, why do you think they did that? They did that because they're letting Lot know, we know very clearly what's going on in the city. Lot quickly ushers them into his own house and he feeds them a meal. Now, the text gives us very very clear indications of Sodom's wickedness. Notice verse 4. Just before the visitors hit the rack for a night's rest, after eating this meal, the men of Sodom, and notice what it says in the text, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house and demanded that Lot send the visitors out so they could sexually assault them. Now, we know from the text, the reading of the text is very explicit. I'm going to be as discreet as possible. When the text uses the phrase, bring them out so we may know them, these men were committed to homosexually abusing and assaulting these men. This is some of the most grotesque sexual sin that you could imagine being talked about here in the Bible. But you also see in verses seven, verses six and seven and verse nine, Lot is mortified and goes out to appeal to these men, says, guys, don't do this evilness. Don't do this wickedness. And these men are so wicked, they turn their attention now on Lot and they say to Lot, we're going to do to you worse than what we were going to do to them. Luckily for Lot, the visitors inside the house bring him back in the house, and they strike the men outside of the house with blindness, so they're groping in the dark. Now, again, don't miss something in the text. Notice, again, it is mentioned about every generation that is filled with their wickedness. Young and old, their wickedness has filled their judgments, and they are not afraid to violate visitors to their town, which would be an unthinkable thing to Eastern hospitality. That's how evil this is. This is a thing that wouldn't even be talked about among even pagan nations all around. These men were depraved and their moral compass was unhinged. And then we see how wicked these cities were in verses 24 and 25 when it reveals to us the Lord's judgment on them. The Lord burned them with sulfur and fire from heaven. In other words, the eyewitnesses looked up to heaven and said, yep, everything we've heard is true. And the Lord then rains down fire and destroys these cities. Now, again, notice the contrast. I don't want you to miss the contrast. I'm going to mention this a lot between righteous Abraham and wicked Sodom. In Genesis 18, Abraham received the Lord when he showed up at his house with his visitors. He fed them a meal. He appealed to them in honor. He submitted himself to their, to, to be their servant for their benefit and their joy. Abraham trusted the God of the universe for all of life's blessings and believed in his promises. He was counted righteous because of it. The Sodomites, on the other hand, wanted to abuse the same visitors. They wanted to sexually assault them. 
What happened in Sodom was people decided their own sin, their own depravity was better than the God of creation. They rejected God in favor of their own ways, and they were wicked because of it. Their homosexuality in this text was due to their rebellion against God. Now, if you know your Bibles are up this tomorrow, you can hear Romans 1 all over the place in this. Now, throughout the Bible, you're going to find something fascinating about Sodom. Ligon Duncan, in his sermon on this text, described it this way. The scripture's view of Sodom and her sin is grim. We could look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah. We could look at Moses' words in Deuteronomy 32 and Jeremiah again in Lamentations 4. Paul takes up reference to Sodom in Romans 9 and again Jude in Jude 7. John in the book of Revelation. Over and over, Sodom and Gomorrah are pictured in the Bible as archetypes of what fallen human nature can descend to when God's common grace is withdrawn. When God wants to rebuke his children of Israel for their wickedness, he'll go right to the picture of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, Sodom is a picture and the picture of what happens when humans forsake the God of heaven. Don't miss this, especially in the culture around you that's saying, God is dead. We don't need God. We can run our own things. Their wickedness was great because of their rejection against God was great. When humans reject the God of heaven, God gives them over to all of their lusts and all of their passions, and they're blinded by their own sin. And with that comes every immoral act imaginable. That's what we see with Sodom the wicked. That's our second character. Let's look at our third one, which is Lot the compromised. Lot, Lot will break your heart. It's important to remember why Lot was in Sodom in the first place. In Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and his family has been They've left Egypt with loads of possessions. And in that moment, because it's so many possessions, Abraham and Lot's servants begin to have a fight because there wasn't enough land for all of their possessions to live together. As a way of making peace, Abraham told Lot, you pick whatever land you want, and if you take the left, I'll take the right. If you take the right, I'll take the left. And we're told in verse 10 of Genesis 13 that Lot looked around and he picked the most well-watered spot in fertile land. It was in the direction of Zoar, which is in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll notice verse 13, Lot picked this land knowing the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. So Genesis 13 is already telling us Lot's got an issue. Lot chose this land because it looked good to his eyes, but in reality, he chose it because he was selfish. He was greedy, and he wanted his own land for himself, and he wanted to prove to Abraham that he was a man. Abraham, on the other hand, what did he do? He let Lot pick for himself. You take whatever you want, Lot, 
and I'll take whatever's left over. What's intriguing is after they made that decision, the Lord told Abraham, hey, I know Lot took the best, but you just look around. Everything that you can see is going to be yours. Again, do you see the contrast? You see compromise Lot from the beginning, already choosing selfish, greedy, his own way, wanting to prove himself. And you see unselfish, godly, righteous Abraham saying, you take whatever you want. I'll take whatever's left over. Now, this is important to Genesis 19 because when the angels arrive in the city, you'll notice where Lot is sitting. He's sitting in the city gate, which is an indicator that Lot is a man who's known about town. He's a leader in the city. He's a man of influence in the city. What you're going to notice is Sodom is Lot's town. We know that he knew the city because the moment the angels arrived, he did everything he could to get those angels into his house, didn't he? He knew it. Get them away from the city square because he knew exactly what the men of Sodom would do. And we also know, when you read the text, that when the men approach his house, he calls them brothers. A term of intimate fellowship. Don't do this, brothers. See, Lot might have been related to Abraham because he was his nephew. But Lot had become a citizen of Sodom. We see his compromise in the text in ways that you just cannot even imagine. Verse 8, Lot does something that is completely unthinkable. When the men of the town ask for the visitors to be brought out so they can have their way with them sexually, Lot goes out and says, hey, no reason to take the guys. I got two innocent daughters you can have instead. Now, parents, I'll let you have that conversations with your kids. This moment should absolutely stun you when you read this. Yes, he is right to defend and protect the visitors, but my goodness sake, brother, you are called by God to protect the innocence of your daughters, and you're willing to throw them to the wolves? What in the world is happening to this man? Compromise. He is one of Sodom's sons. Verse 14, when Lot went to warn his future sons-in-law, and I think about my own son-in-law, and I think about those that hear me and watch me interact with things. He went to go warn them of the coming destruction and beg them to leave the town. They thought Lot was joking. You know what that tells you about Lot? Tells you that Lot's conversations with his sons-in-law matched the city of Sodom. They were immoral just like the rest. You couldn't tell if he was joking or if he was serious or what. You never talk about the things of God and now suddenly you're telling us judgment is coming? Yeah, right, Lot. That's funny. He had no influence over them because he was compromised. Verse 16 comes about when it came time to flee the city for destruction. You're going to notice something. And it's just a short little two-word statement about Lot. Lot lingered. He literally had to be dragged out by the angels before the first meteor hit the buildings. Verses 17 and 18, he's told to flee to the hills for safety. And he replied, oh, no, hey, listen, we're good here. Let me just take this little town of Zoar. 
that doesn't seem like a big deal, but Zoar's about to get blasted. It's about to fall under the judgment of God. You know what Lot is saying in this moment? Hey, you don't understand. Can't we have a little piece of Sodom to keep with us? Verse 26, they're told, when you leave, don't look back. And what does Lot's wife do? The moment she leaves the town, she looks back on Sodom and is turned into a pillar of salt. Sodom's influence on Lot influenced his wife. And then to top it off, and I didn't read this on purpose, so parents, you can read this at some time with your kids, are the final words we read about Lot in the book of Genesis. After the destruction is complete, Lot, finally, he and his daughters are the only ones left, they think. They finally get to the hills and they leave Zoar. And while they're in the hills of Zoar, his, his daughters come up with a plot that makes a mockery of their father by having an incestuous relationships with their dad to bring about two grandsons. The grandsons are the father of the Moabites and the father of the Ammonites who become two of Israel's fiercest enemies in the promised land. Disaster after disaster because Lot was compromised. And I'm telling you, this absolutely should break your heart. A.P. Ross wrote it like this, and I find this quote to be really helpful and at the same time tragic. Ironically, though, he would sacrifice his daughter's virginity to fend off the vice of evil men, he would still escape the judgment by the grace of God. But his heart had become part of this world. His wife was too attached to the city to follow the the call of grace, and his daughters were not uncomfortable with immorality with their father. Hypocrisy was revealed by the visitation from on high. Again, notice the contrast. Abraham sits in peace, having a meal with God, receiving God's promise, waiting upon God's promise to be fulfilled, while Lot is rotting in a cave, having illegitimate grandsons to his name, who become the vice enemies of the people of God. Do you see the contrast? Now let's look at one final character in the scene, which is God the righteous judge. When you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you can get a little queasy in your stomach. And believe me, like I told our elders last night, as I was sharing with them some uh, things we've been wrestling through personally, I said, part of my struggle for the last two weeks is I've been living in the land of Sodom and studying about it. And it makes you sick. I have saved you hours of reading that would make you Just sick. But reading about a judgment like this makes us a little queasy. And for some of us, some of you might think, this is a bit over the top, isn't it? I mean, really, God's going to take out an entire city? But what Sodom and Gomorrah say to us and what it was intended to say to the people of God is something that we had better get into our spiritual DNA and we better lock it in to our minds and our hearts real deeply. God always acts rightly, and he always judges justly. There is not one sinister darkness in God. There is not one 
failed or imperfect judgment with God. God always acts rightly and he always judges justly. Now, here's why we can say this. Abraham, the righteous one, could not believe there were not 10 people in that town and even challenged God to say, how dare you judge the righteous with the wicked? He couldn't believe it. But Abraham clearly did not see the moral decadence in Sodom because he was a man. Righteous as he was before God, his humanity gave him sinful optimism. Lot certainly didn't think it was a bad idea because, and Lot was, I mean, Sodom was all bad because he raised a family there and learned their ways. He lingered because he longed for Sodom. Lot couldn't see because he was compromised and enticed by Sodom's charm. But from God's vantage point, Sodom and Gomorrah were evil and so evil and so wicked that they must be removed from the existence of the earth. Remember, the outcries of Sodom's wickedness had come to the ears of God long before God had rained down fire and brimstone on them. He sent messengers to, yes, get eyewitnesses so there could be no question. Did God see? Did God hear? And the answer is, yes, he did. And in the end, what did God do? He acted rightly and he judged justly because he always does. Now, friends, this is a remarkably important lesson for you in the world that you live in right now. Like Abraham, we tend to believe things are just a little better with people than they are. We don't see the depth of human depravity. We hope against hope. And this is why, honestly, just being straight with you, and I've said, you've heard me say this enough, you've been in our services, we are shocked by the sinfulness of sinners. What this story tells you is, stop being shocked. Sinful sinners do sinful things. That's what they do. A wicked world that has rejected the God of the universe will have all manner of evil running through it, and things that are unimaginable will be talked about in broad daylight. Stop being shocked. The reason you're shocked is because you don't believe it can really happen. That's Abraham. Most in our world, like Lot and members of his family, would have to be dragged out of the evil city to survive its demise. They don't think it's nearly as bad as God does. It would be unfathomable to them that God would do things like this. Is it really this bad that you take out an entire city? But God, friends, you've got to get this. God is the only being in the universe with perfect clarity. He's the only being in the universe who is objective enough to judge perfectly and judge rightly. Indeed, the judge of all the earth will do what is just. He indeed will. God is the only perfectly wise, perfectly just, perfectly holy being in the universe. And when he determines something is wicked and sinful, It is, regardless of what your news feed says or your friends tell you, God always acts rightly and he always judges justly. 
What God determines is sin, is sin. Not what your world says around you. Not what your preacher might tell you. What God has said. A friend of mine said years ago when he'd catechized me over and over again, David, what is truth? And my response was always, truth is what God said. God always acts rightly. He always judges justly. Now we're going to close by looking at four lessons to be learned. Now here's where these lessons are stirred from. Friends, I know that you think that the world that you're living in is the worst it has ever been. And I want to tell you, it is not. It's bad. Things are happening that you can't believe are happening, that you're still shocked by, but you are living in a world like Sodom. And the patience and the grace of God is withholding final judgment until the end. So how do we live in this world and navigate through Sodom? How do we do this? How do we navigate through a world that we don't have people knocking our door down to sexually assault us, but yet it's going on in our world? How do we live in a world like this? How do we safeguard our hearts? There's four things I want to give you. The first one is this. Be aware that no no one can escape the judgment of God. See, Sodom's reputation went up to the court of heaven. God knew because he always does. Don't be fooled by the arrogance of this evil world. People may flaunt their sins today, but God will one day have his day. You need to understand, one day, justice will roll down like a river, and it will be perfect justice, and God will have his day, because he always acts rightly, and he always judges justly. But listen, don't fool yourself that you can fool God. God knows your secret sins just like God knows your public sins. Stop ignoring that there is a God in heaven because, friends, that didn't help the Sodomites. No one can escape the judgment of God. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us very clearly it's appointed for man to die and then comes judgment. As you'll see toward the end, I'm going to tell you, put your trust in Jesus and realize that's the only thing that will keep you safe in the day of judgment. But listen, if you trusted the Lord, I I really hope you have seen this throughout the text. Do not love this world or the things of this world. Listen, we've got to learn from Lot to compromise. Hear his story. See how compromise, his compromise tainted his family. I mean, I don't know how you guys operate or how you live. I think in terms of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think in terms of generations to come. I ask myself this question regularly. How will your life attest to the third and fourth generations of the faithfulness of God? I also ask the same question you should, that Lot should have asked. How can my compromise affect the third and fourth generation? Child of God, listen, the world's philosophy, which is 
sinful pleasure, selfish gain, and sexual lust is going to lie to you. It's going to tell you there is life coming and it will last forever. But according to 1 John, it will be put to death. It will be done away. It is temporal. It will cost you your life and the lives of those you care about the most. Do not love this world or the things of this world. It will pass away. Don't give yourself to its lies. So as you're observing the world, that doesn't mean you don't love Crater Lake and how cool that place looks like. Or you love snow skiing. It's the pleasure, the philosophies, the secular disengagement from the God of heaven that says that's where life is found. No, no, no. Don't be lied to by that. Don't love the world or the things of the world. But rather, I'd give you the third thing. Love God and love others. Obey the greatest commands. Because you're going to notice in the text the way of life in the story. What's the way of life? It's found in loving God and loving others. It's in the contrast. You see the contrast. Because we see Abraham, the man of faith, the light, loving and honoring God, serving others, praying for the righteous to be saved. He's at peace, waiting on the Lord to bring him his miracle promise. And we have Lot, the compromised, whose family line becomes a curse. We have Sodom, the wicked, pursuing their unbridled passions, and they're filled with darkness and death and destruction has come to their doorstep. Love God, love others, serve Christ, serve others, live as God created you to live in the midst of this crazy world. And here's what you're going to find. You're going to find God-like pleasure and joy that's completely, it's just unsearchable, that the world has no categories for. Because it's it's a joy that comes from the God of the universe and his pleasure toward you. The last thing I would tell you in this world is you must see Jesus. You must see Jesus. There there are two sightings of the Savior in this text. The first one is obvious. If you are a Christological person like I am, I look for this stuff on every page of Scripture, and you see bracketing the story of Sodom and Gomorrah's fiery judgment is Abraham. He's seen at the beginning praying and interceding for the righteous of the city, he's seen after the judgment, taking his place before the Lord, and in that moment, God remembered Lot and rescued him. Now, this is important because in this moment, we get a glimpse in the New Testament that Abraham is a picture of Jesus. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there is one mediator, one who stands between God and man, It's the man, Christ Jesus. And we're told in Hebrews 7 what he is doing when he is mediating, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Your Savior, the greater Abraham, is standing before the God of the universe praying for you right now. He's pleading with God for you right now. He's pleading for strength for you. He's pleading that you might stand in the day of trouble. He's pleading before God to say, listen, count not their sins against them. He's standing before God for you. 
see Jesus, your Savior, standing before God right now in the midst of all of your trouble in this world and see him standing before God for you. But there's another sighting of Jesus that I don't want you to miss that's important. It's found in a funny spot. It's found in Lot's firstborn grandson of immorality. You see his name. His name is Moab. He's the father of the Moabites, which seems like just a small kind of thing, just kind of tossed in, like, what is the big deal about the Moabites? Well, the big deal is in this subtle little moment, through the providential history of God, in the decadence of human sin, we get a glimpse of Jesus because years later, there comes a lady of Moab, and her name is Ruth. Ruth marries a man named Boaz, who become the grandparents of King David. And you find an interesting thing in the lineage of Jesus. You find Ruth's name just after Rahab, the prostitute's name. In other words, the plans and the purposes of God will not be thwarted by human sin. Even, listen, even, listen, the most grotesque sin. Now, friends, that should give you and all of us remarkable hope. Because maybe you've lived like the Sodomites. Maybe you are right now living like the Sodomites. Maybe you have. This reveals to you there's hope for you in the Lord. God is willing to turn your guilt into freedom. So see Jesus. Maybe you've compromised yourself like Lot. And you know where you see your compromise? You see it in the things that your kids giggle at that you used to be appalled at. That you've introduced to them. And you just have to ask yourself, if my kids are giggling at this that I used to be appalled at, what will my grandkids giggle at? Maybe you've compromised yourself like Lot. Well, listen, God can use your sin to help you see Jesus because your sin reveals you need him. Your sin doesn't have to separate you anymore from God to see Jesus. Maybe you've wondered, can I, can you, can God ever overcome the sinfulness of humanity? See, I know what most of us do as Christians, and we're really self-righteous in this. We go to Sodom, and we go, see there, look how bad the world is. Look out there how bad everything is. And we forget to realize we are Lot. Is there any hope for sinful humanity? And the end of the story says, yes, yes, there is. Because God brought a woman from Moab to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. To prove to us that Jesus is on the scene. It's important that you see Jesus as you navigate through the evils of the world. Do you see him 
withholding God's judgment for you and rescuing him because he's standing before God for you. You understand, don't you, that Jesus being before the throne means you don't have to love the world anymore because Jesus has loved you. You don't have to give in to the temptations of this world because your king is with you and he's praying for you. You don't have to let your sin separate you because your king looked into the Moabites and said, oh, Ruth, come along. See Jesus in this world of decadence. He has gone before you. He prays for you. He's strengthening you. And listen, he forgives you. Let's pray. As we're praying right now before the Lord, I want you to do business with God. Charles Spurgeon would tell you, do business with your God right in your seat. And maybe this morning you, you have, you came in here and you were going, I, there's no way my sin, I, I've done so many bad things and there's no way that God could ever be my friend. Well, friend, this text tells you that your God sent a savior for you to forgive you and make you right with him. And this morning, I just want to call you to believe in him, to repent, turn from your own way to him. You can do that right now in your seat. Tell him you believe in him, you trust in him, you <clears throat> you see the reality of what he's done for you, and thank him for the reality of your forgiveness. Maybe you have been compromised like Lot. And now, as it's been revealed, what's happened is the glory of the righteous judgment of God has shined the light upon your life, and you've suddenly realized Oh, no. My compromise has affected my children. My compromise has affected my spouse. And this morning, I just want to say to you that your God is waiting for you to repent. He will empower you to change by the power of his spirit. This morning, I just tell you, respond to the conviction right now. Don't run from it. Don't hide. And then I want to stir some of you that you look around at the world and all you do is get discouraged by what you read and you think, man, it's so bad. Things are terrible. Nothing's going to happen. God can't do things. How I just don't understand it. And you're so mad at the world that you have lost sight of the hope and the power of the gospel of Christ and the wonder of the kingdom of God on this earth. You've lost sight of that. And this morning, I just want to ask you to ask the Lord to pick your eyes up out of the fog of war to see the clarity of the sun. That he has intervened in this world and he has put his church in this world and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and his righteousness will one day run over this earth like the waters cover the sea and his justice will one day reign supreme because he always acts just rightly and he always judges justly.
and you've lost sight of hope. Father, help us this morning. Forgive us where we have compromised, where we have, we have been like Lot. We, we've lingered when you've told us to leave. We've begged for a little piece of Sodom when you've told us to run for the hills. Forgive us for what we've allowed in our homes. Forgive us for what we have, we have not instructed to our children. Father, pick up our heads to see King Jesus seated on his throne. Standing before you for us. There's one mediator. And he is it. And he is overseeing all the work of his kingdom on this earth. And he will see it all through. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we, your people, choose today to bow our knee now to that king. Lift up our heads in the midst of the darkness to see Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.